0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 2. We'll be finishing up the chapter. Um, Our passage for tonight is Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 to 26. So I'll go ahead and read our section of Scripture, and then we will pray for God's blessing and help upon our time. Okay. Ecclesiastes 2. This is the word of God, beginning in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For otherwise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help now to illumine our minds and humble our hearts that we would receive your word. Uh, Lord, that we would wrestle with hard things, even things we don't like or things that make us uncomfortable. And we do so so that we can arrive at your truth, uh, so that we can strive to honor you, so that we can take our cues from what you have revealed in the pages of scripture. Lord, as you teach us about wisdom and work and how they are designed to help us uh, cherish you and to enjoy the gifts that you've entrusted to us, I pray that uh, this would be formative for every day for how we approach our jobs, to how we think about our careers, to what we do with our lives, that it would be uh, submitted under the authority of your word. And so use this time now in a profitable way to us. In Jesus name we pray, amen. Well, 144,000 seconds, 2,400 minutes, or 40 hours. That's the normal work week, right? And we can try to tinker with that ratio. Some of us might work more. Some of us may work less. Uh, but we're looking for that perfect work-life balance, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. Because we don't arrange our life around the perfect church life or play life or sleep life balance even though typically on a given week, we spend more time in bed than at the office. now we give work such a central, such a lion's share portion of our lives. I mean, we'll even put in overtime, cancel plans to meet deadlines to finish our assignment. In fact, just think about how you introduce yourself to a stranger, to a friend, how you would write your own bio. What comes soon after your name? Probably not, I am the son or daughter of so-and-so, or I'm a Christian who loves praxis. And don't worry, I'm not offended, only slightly. No, we identify ourselves often by what we do. You know, I'm an occupational therapist, I'm a data analyst, I'm a manager I'm a pastor. And even if you're currently unemployed, you'll tell others, well, I'm looking for a job or I'm in grad school so that I can eventually become a doctor or a teacher. And all this reveals to us what we think about work. I don't think I have to convince you. It's pretty important to us. The question though, is how important should it really be? In our passage, the preacher is gonna explore this. Does life boil down to living wisely, working ourselves up the ladder and achieving success? Is this what really matters because this is where meaning can be found? Now a bit of review, we're near the end of the first section of Ecclesiastes, the the preacher conducting his little experiment. He's been investigating popular options in his hunt for meaning. Back in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18, the preacher takes up knowledge, wisdom. If he's big brain and knows the most, if he uh, accumulates all the degrees from the most prestigious universities, then will he be happy? So he tries, but that pursuit leaves him empty and he declares it's a striving after the wind. Next, as we saw last time, he turns then to pleasure. If the mind won't satisfy, maybe the body can't. Maybe pleasure will provide ultimate meaning. The preacher plunges headfirst into all that the world has to offer. He gives himself over to what feels good. Anything, right? Laughter, wine, sex, becoming a rich, powerful real estate tycoon. Yet despite all his possessions, despite all his experiences, satisfaction still eludes him. Tonight, the preacher circles back to wisdom, to take a closer look. Now, where his earlier attempt dealt more with the cerebral and knowing as much as possible, the preacher now takes it a step further. He applies himself. You could say the difference this time is that in the prior section, it was more theoretical, intelligence, making sure that you're not ignorant. And in our section tonight, it's a transition into practice, concrete evidence. He applies his wisdom to his life, and he strives and works to succeed to see if reaching your full potential is what will bring meaning. I was thinking about these three areas, these three experiments conducted, knowledge, pleasure, and then wisdom slash work. And they kind of parallel us growing up. They kind of match the, the various phases we go through in life and where we look to for purpose. We spend our elementary days learning in school, thinking there's nothing more important than education and filling our minds. And then we get older, and maybe around college, we let loose a little, right? We party it up because school isn't everything. It's time to do what feels good. But once that is out of our system, well, we sober up, we settle down, and we get serious living wisely, working hard. That's what life must be about. And the preacher records what he discovers about this last stage, about wisdom and work. And he arranges, he organizes his thoughts under three key words. First, the grave, the grave. Look again at verse 12. He says, so I turn to consider Wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Now, initially, this is a tricky verse to translate, and it can be a little confusing to understand. In essence, it's a weird flex. It's kind of like a humble brag, right? Well, not really too humble, because the preacher is saying, if anyone is going to fully explore pleasure and wisdom. If there's anyone with access, with all the resources and opportunities to search for meaning in these different things, it's going to be who else but the king. And we know him as King Solomon. Divine wisdom, super rich. And so whoever comes after him will only at best be able to do what he's already done to uncover what he's already uncovered. The preacher is establishing that he is the leading expert, the authority on discovering whether satisfaction can be found in wisdom in work. Now, before taking up this, uh, before addressing this topic of wisdom, we need to know what it is and how it relates to work. And I'm sure you're familiar with the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And knowledge is kind of like the raw data, the facts, the infos that, for example, there is a sale going on at my favorite store. Wisdom is what you do with the info. Knowledge in action. So you you go to that store and then buy that item on discount and save some money. See, it's not enough to be book smart. You have to be street smart as well. And to the Hebrew mind, this is really what wisdom gets at. It's the idea of skill, of proficiency, of using what you know and what you have to be good at life. Well, the preacher analyzes the perks of being wise and he starts off on a positive note. Continuing in verse 13, he says, "'Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom Than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. This isn't rocket science, right? All things being equal, we know it's better to be wise than it is to be foolish, just like how it's better to live with light than to go without it. You know, you enter your living room at night and what do you do? You flip the switch on so that you avoid stubbing your toe on the corner of the couch and so that you can sit down and read a good book. And Solomon's saying wisdom is like that. It enables you, it allows you to see and live rightly instead of just blindly bumbling along and maybe getting injured on the way. Just think of the guy who is responsible who shows up to work, eats healthy, spends his time and money wisely. And then there's another guy, Exhibit B. And this guy just binge watches TV all day while binge eating ice cream, eight gallons of it, after he has just spent his last penny on a tattoo of a potato, right? One guy is clearly going places. The other guy is probably not. No offense if you have a, potato tattoo. But see, the point is wisdom usually pays off. On the other hand, you play stupid games and you win stupid prizes. The preacher is in effect saying, look, we can all come to this consensus, right? It's good to budget for a rainy day, for retirement. It's good to exercise daily refrain from too many sweets. The alternative is to be foolish, to be out of money and out of shape. There is a practical gain, a benefit to wisdom. It has its advantages. It can make life smoother for you. It can spare you a lot of trouble and pain. But here's the caveat. It can't solve all your problems, especially your biggest one. The preacher's mood sours verse 14. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool? What happened to me also? Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What is the same event? Verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Yes, wisdom can make your life better. It just can't make you invincible. Wisdom's benefit package runs out at the grave. How many of you have graduated from college? Congratulations. The preacher says you're still going to die, right? That's a little tongue in cheek, but it's true. It gets to his point. It doesn't matter if you're well-educated, savvy, if you master every life hack possible. It doesn't matter if you're a lazy doofus drunken on drugs. Whether you're smarter than Albert Einstein or dumber than a rock like me, all roads eventually funnel to one final destination. The grave. You see, the grave remains undefeated. It comes in all shapes and sizes. You'll follow what the preacher is telling us. Death is the ultimate equalizer the only thing guaranteed to us in life. And the preacher looks down the corridors of time and no matter how he cuts it, he can't escape his fate. Sure, you might be able to use wisdom to achieve the American dream, marry up, have 2.5 kids, purchase a mansion in a quiet suburb, but that won't enable you to avoid the same fate as the lonely bum on the corner. So the preacher cries out, who cares? Ultimately, who cares about living wisely or foolishly if you're going to die, if you end up in the same place? And we know this. We understand it with our heads intellectually, but the danger with the inevitability of death is all we do is we just pay lip service to it. We give it mental assent, but we brush it off because inside we think, Well, I'm the exception. I'm different. After all, this is praxis, right? We're healthy, vibrant. We are young adults. We're in our 20s with so much of life ahead of us. Of course, you think, I'm going to die. If you mean 50 years from now. And that's what we end up doing. We push this reality so far into the future. It's as if dying right now isn't possible. Let's move on. This is too depressing. I don't want to think about my tombstone. I just want to go to Disneyland or whatever my happy place may be. But the reason the preacher is so resilient, so adamant on having us peer into our own coffin is because all the other pieces of the puzzle won't fit into place until you figure out what you're gonna do with this one first. You see, life needs to be lived backwards, that you learn how to live after you accept that you're gonna die. I mean, it's that tried and true hypothetical. If you knew you were going to die today, how would that impact or alter your last 24 hours on earth. It's a game changer, right? Death has this clarifying effect because it vanquishes any illusion we might have about wisdom, about work, about life itself. And maybe you think, well, I may not always be around but I can focus on leaving a legacy, okay? But the preacher would respond, no legacy lasts forever. Given enough time, death erases us and any memory of our existence. I mean, even if you have something named after you, what good does it do for you when you're six feet under? Think Carnegie Hall. What's that guy's first name or what is he famous for? I don't know. Christopher Columbus Day, right? It's a national holiday. That's pretty cool, but really, who cares? Certainly not Christopher Columbus. He's gone. As Woody Allen, the film director said, I don't want to achieve uh, immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. And the preacher groans. He knows this. And so he concludes in verse 17. So I hated life. Hear that. I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I mean, get that verse tattooed, right? Write that in a get well soon card. It's brutal, but it's real. How does our world respond to impending death? Or how do we often cope with it? I think we employ two strategies, denial or distraction. We either refuse to deal with it or we just preoccupy ourselves so we don't have the time to. I mean, what's our go-to answer to the question, how are you doing? How are you doing? You probably tell someone, I'm busy. I'm busy. Because let's be honest, it's uncomfortable if we're not. It's unnerving to have nothing going on in our lives. In the stillness, in the silence, it's there that we are confronted with our mortality. So we turn. Distraction it is, on to the next hobby or the next work goal or the next new year resolution. We refresh our Facebook or Instagram feed to watch another entertaining video, another ad for the must-have product in our life. We save up to update our wardrobe or upgrade our phone. We pack out our calendars with events and celebrations to trick ourselves into thinking we have a lot going on and it's never coming to an end or we become workaholics as we will soon see. Yet here's the irony. We fill our lives with more frivolous things so we don't have to deal with our own frivolousness. At least in verse 17, the preacher is honest. You know, he's not afraid to stare at death and He's also not afraid to share how this makes him feel. Even if he sounds like a lunatic and that he's on the border of committing suicide. You know, I can appreciate the courage and the vulnerability. It teaches us something about the Christian faith. That Christianity is not about turning a blind eye to all the hardships of life or sugarcoating difficult realities like death. The Bible, the Bible has honest books, raw passages like this one in Ecclesiastes to tackle the heavy questions we have head on. And we might not like the answers, but we need scriptures like this to give it to us straight, to tell us the truth. Here's the bottom line. Wisdom is a good companion. It can be a great help in life, but it can't help us avoid death. And I want that to hang heavy, that there should be this specter of death looming on the horizon of all that we do. The preacher proves his point by evaluating wisdom where often shines the brightest in our work. So second, we move from the grave To the grind, the grind. And remember, wisdom is about skill, succeeding, doing well in life. And here the preacher bemoans how being wise, succeeding in our careers, still carries its own set of issues. So, first, there is a problem with our earnings. That in our grind, there is a problem with our earnings. Look again at verse. 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up Gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom, knowledge, and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. We recognize we need to work. We need to work to earn a living. So we slave away during. Uh, uh, Under long hours, we take our work home with us. We log in over the weekend to ensure what? A steady income, to ensure our place for the promotion. Or maybe we are more uh, adventurous and we build a business so big that our company goes public and it's part of the Fortune 500. And at that point, we're just swimming in money. But listen, regardless of how much wealth we accumulate, death, is waiting in the wings to claim it all. As the saying goes, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse because when you die, you can't take anything with you. And in some cruel and strange sense, the more you accrue, the more you gain, the more you have to lose. All your success will go to your successor. They didn't work for it. They didn't do anything to earn it, except for one simple thing, they outlived you. That's unfair, right? And to twist the knife deeper, you don't even have complete control over the kind of person you leave your wealth to, or even what they do with your estate. Your beneficiary could manage your funds shrewdly. They could use it towards noble purposes, but it's also a possibility that your beneficiary is a complete idiot and blows all your wealth on fidget spinners or whatever else is featured on QVC. We've seen, read, and heard of these trust fund babies who splurge away their, their entire inheritance on summer parties and fast cars. We know of plenty of companies filing for bankruptcies Months after, the reins are handed over to an incompetent CEO. Not to be mean, but just think of the, some of the socialites today. What about the successful businessman and defense attorney who rose to fame as O.J. Simpson's lawyer? You might not be familiar with his face or his name, but you're aware of his kids, the Kardashians. I'm not sure he envisioned his hard-earned money to be spent, and I kid you not, on gold-plated toilets. The price tag was $750,000. See, this is the kind of stuff I stumble on in my sermon prep. Or to cherry-pick another example, you have Hilton Hotels, right? They're ubiquitous. They're, they're everywhere, with over 600 of them worldwide. Now, just think about it. Part of the revenue they generate has gone towards sustaining someone like Paris Hilton and her extravagant lifestyle. And my point in saying all this isn't just to dunk on the rich and the famous. The point is there's very little control, very little say and choice in how our earnings are handled after we're gone. You might die a billionaire, but it only takes one bozo heir to squander the fruit of your labor, a lifetime of your work. And I was thinking about this and I was convicted. You know, I thought instead of having my family and friends squabble over my humongous net worth, uh, this just means I need to sell it all and spend it all. So maybe next time I'm up here, you'll see me with uh, an Apple Vision Pro or something like that. So my apologies to my kids, but that's how it goes. Now, obviously I'm kidding. We, we still need to exercise caution, still be wise, but there's a lesson here. That's the first problem of grinding it out at the office. You just never know for sure what's going to happen to what you earn. The second problem of the grind is a problem with our expectations. Problem with our expectations. Now, did you catch the word that the preacher uses throughout these verses? If you peer closely, in every verse from verse 18 to 22, he talks about toil the word can be translated trouble burden and look at his summary in verse 22 he says what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity The preacher describes work as a toil full of sorrow and vexation. We know this. Work is stressful. It's anxiety-inducing. It occupies headspace until we get headaches. Your job owns you, right, during the day. And your job, guess what, also owns you during the night. When you're trying to rest and catch some sleep, you toss and turn because Your mind is still racing, thinking about emails you've got to respond to, meetings you have to prepare for. And we think to ourselves, this can't be what work is supposed to be. And so we dream. We picture the ideal job, a corner office, great coworkers who sing our praise, fat salary, work that is challenging but rewarding because it addresses real needs, it solves real problems. And in our imagination, that's when our passion and our projects converge. And work doesn't feel like work because we'll love every second of it. Time flies, after all, when you're having fun. But listen, that is why it's all a dream. Because there's no such thing. We've got wrong expectations about work. And we think to ourselves, once we find the right job or work at the right company, then we'll never dread it. Look, even if you have a good job, a fulfilling job, it's still a job. Work is always going to be, as the preacher says, toil. The problem comes when we don't expect it to be. It's no wonder we're constantly thinking about a career change. The next promotion, refining our resumes, applying for another job. We think there's got to be something better. We just need to find our calling because surely work can't be this endless grind. But the truth is, every job is, even the best ones. I'm sure there are days when professional athletes, they don't want to hit the gym. They don't want to show up to practice. Musicians making millions, sure, but They're constantly on tour, sleeping in a hotel away from family. Even if you're the big boss, you have to lay off employees. You have to cast vision for the entire business. You need to fend off your competitors. I mean, I confess, I enjoy ministry, but it's not always sunshine and rainbows. Sometimes my mind doesn't work. It's a fog and preparing a sermon is a drag. Sometimes there's drama and people don't like me. I know it doesn't happen that often, but it does. You see, it's here we need a proper theology of work. Because on the one hand, we tend to demonize work as if it is a result of the fall, a consequence of sin, something we're cursed with. And yet on the other hand, we can swing too far the other way and we deify work treating our jobs, our vocation as if there's nothing more worthy, nothing more important. But both camps are not entirely right because they are only partially true. Flip back to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Now, if you remember, Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation account, specifically day 6, and the creation of man. And so here, the author, Moses, he's giving us the details of how it all went down. And in verse eight, we read this, that God plants a garden in Eden. God fills this paradise with all sorts of trees, pleasant to look at, plentiful for food. Now jump down to verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to relax? No, to work it to keep it. This is, again, Genesis 2, before sin enters the world, pre-fall, get that. God's very good creation includes work. God is the first boss ever. He assigns the first job ever to Adam, to be a gardener. You see, work is in our DNA. And you might have experienced this to a certain degree, the sense of satisfaction from a job well done. It may be hard. It may require a lot of time and effort, but there are those moments where your creative juices are flowing, all your faculties are engaged, and you're in the zone. And you beam when it's done. You step back and you admire when that painting is finished. You sigh a, a relief because you've submitted that big paper. You feel good when you find and fix the bug in your code or you help a patient get better. You don't feel like a complete waste. You've done something productive, you've worked. And this is how God originally designed work to be. But then what happens? Just one chapter over Genesis three, man sins, And everything goes haywire. Everything is subjected to futility, work included. Yeah, Genesis 3, 17 to 18. For their disobedience, it's not just man who's cursed, but look at this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Where the ground used to work in concert with man, now because of sin, it works against us. You know what we call this? Toil. It's work under the sun. Where not everything goes according to plan and you aren't promised to succeed just because you are wise or you're diligent. And I'm sure you have experienced this as well. You may labor to the best of your abilities, but the numbers don't always add up. You prep like crazy, but the pitch doesn't land. The promotion doesn't go to the one who deserves it the most. Work is not always enjoyable. Work is not everything. And we make that fatal mistake when we try to make it everything. And then we're in a whirlwind of disappointment. I was reading this article about Michael Phelps and other Olympians. And it was saying how for all of his medals and world records, after he retired, and I think even partially through it, Phelps contemplated taking his own life. And another gold medalist was describing, sharing just the day after he had won, what it felt like. And he was saying the sun rose, people went about their busy lives. And he just sat there feeling this wave of sadness come over him. He had expected something fundamentally changed, but once the elation of the victory wore off, he was numb. He was lost. What's next? These people had worked so hard to reach the top, but what happens once you arrive? What's work once you're done? You see, when you have too high of an estimation of work, of what it can bring you, the fall is going to be incredibly painful. Look, you were made to work, but you are not made for work. You get that? You were made to work, but you are not made for work. The problem is working from a place of emptiness rather than a place of fullness. Fullness. What's the key then? Wisdom and work don't work, but there is a way forward. Our last key word, the gift, the gift. Verse 24, the preacher writes, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Things take another sharp turn. In fact, by now we're so used to the preacher's doom and gloom that on first read, we're wondering if he's being sarcastic, right? We're waiting for the other shoe to drop at the end of verse 24. Something like, this also I saw is vanity, but that's not what he says. The preacher surprises us. For the first time since Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14, God is now brought forward. God is featured front and center. Three times in these closing verses, God is mentioned in rapid succession and that makes all the difference, praxis. God is the one who showers us with many blessings, many gifts, food, friendship, work, and He is also the one who must give us another gift, a gift of enjoyment. That enjoyment itself is something we need to be blessed with. Do you see that? The text says the ability to find enjoyment in toil is traced back to his hand. That apart from God, who can have enjoyment? How does this work? I have heard it illustrated like this. It's as if God gives every single one of us, a can of peaches. If you don't like peaches, you can just substitute whatever fruit, your favorite fruit, you know, Asian pear, I don't know, but you have this can and you're excited because you like peaches and yet in order to enjoy it, what do you need? You need a can opener, right? Without one, you're just miserable. You're trying to gnaw through the metal. You're trying to throw it on the ground and open it, but it's all futile. So what do you do? You get another can. That's got to be the solution, right? The first one is dented, Trade it in for a brand new one, and try to pry it open again. And this cycle repeats and repeats until you're left with an enormous pile. I just need another can. I need a different job. I need a new title at work. I need a pay raise. I need to win employee of the month. Different cans, but what is the real issue? You're missing the can open. That lasting happiness, true satisfaction doesn't come from having a bunch of stuff or a stellar career or life going your way. It comes when God gives you enjoyment because you have the joy of the Lord. When your heart is changed to see everything is a blessing from him that God is gracious to you. The preacher is talking about perspective. Verse 16, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. There's a lot going on here. But suffice to say, two groups are presented to us, those who please God and sinners. And the preacher will expand more upon this in the future. But for now, these two groups are framed in the language of faith, about where we're looking to for purpose, worth, and meaning. Sinners are those who the preacher says are in the business of gathering and collecting, working to prove their significance because their line of sight doesn't include God. You know what we call this? We call this salvation by works. So they put all their eggs into the basket of their occupation or their reputation or their family, whatever they're laboring for as ultimate and when it fails to deliver, or it's not all that it's cracked out to be, then they're crushed. But beloved, the eyes of faith enable us to see the hand of God. That we don't work to justify our existence. That the gospel tells us, no, we have been justified in Christ. We aim to please God since we already have the pleasure of God through his son. Here's the rub, the daily challenge we encounter. It is a battle of whether we will look to all these things for satisfaction or we will look to God and realize he gives us satisfaction. And when he does, then we can look around and enjoy everything. All these things, including work. It's a paradigm shift. As St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You see, once we rest in Him, then we can embrace everything in life as a gift. We trace it back to our good and heavenly Father. A couple of implications then as we wind down. The first one is this stop to enjoy. Stop to enjoy. When death humbles us, when we accept that we can't beat or outwork the system, that life isn't about gaining more, then we see and enjoy the gifts God provides. That instead of merely eating and drinking for fuel so that we can push through the day, we can pause and enjoy God's kindness, His kindness in a good meal. To be present in the moment and see the hand of God and how. He's created a world where flavors abound, where food tastes good. He didn't have to do that. He could have made everything taste like cardboard, but he's a good God. Instead of viewing our careers as a means of amassing a fortune or cementing a legacy, we can accept work's limitation and enjoy it as God intended. Not as the arena in which we prove our worth, find pleasure, or create generational wealth but simply as a tool, as a way to earn a living where we can then be faithful stewards and generous with what we have. And the funny thing is, when we view and treat work not as the ultimate source of contentment, we'll actually begin enjoying it because we're not frustrated by misplaced expectations. Instead of rushing through life as a series of stepping stones, grad school, work, dating, marriage, family, retirement, we recognize our mortality is a yellow light to get us to slow down and enjoy whatever station of life God presently has us in and all that he has provided for us. As one author put it, death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. And this has been such a convicting lesson, like a real one for me, because I have the tendency to just bounce from one thing to the next. Okay, I've got to finish the sermon and then take care of dinner, then get the kids ready to bed, that my day is reduced to a to-do list to just check off. And so I get things done. I breeze through, but I forget to stop and enjoy the blessings that God has given to me. You know That I won't always be a father to a 10 year old girl and a crazy eight year old boy so I should be less concerned about getting them in bed exactly at 9 p.m. on the dot and more interested in just playing, laughing, praying with them before bedtime. I won't always be the pastor of praxis. Don't cry. Don't cheer as well. But it teaches me that I should be less preoccupied with programs and looking ahead and more engaged in the present. Grateful for what God is doing now in our fellowship together, in our friendship with one another. Stop to enjoy. Second and shorter, move on mission. Move on mission. This is the other implication. When death humbles us, it provides perspective that our time here on earth is brief. It's vanity, it's vapor. So we are pressed then towards the urgent. Death doesn't just stop us in our tracks. It should push us to prioritize what truly matters. And so we exercise wisdom. We toil diligently that the gospel might be made known. We take these good good gifts that God has given us and we steward them to reveal the hand of God and his greatest gift to us, Jesus Christ. And we live wisely before others, not so that we can be geniuses who have it all together, but so that we can direct others to the source of true wisdom, true happiness, God and his book. We strive for excellency and we handle our business at work, not for the applause of men or to accrue a crazy amount of riches, but so that we can capitalize on those occasions, those opportunities to share about how good it is that God is our King, our master, and the treasure we have in the gospel. Practice. there's nothing fancy here. It's simply this. What if you embrace both your death and the sovereign grace of God? Where would you invest your time, your thoughts? How would your attitude and approach to your studies, to your job, to your coworkers, how would that change? How would you measure success? What would it look like in your life and in this church if we enjoyed God's gifts and move forward on mission. This is the lesson that Solomon would have for us in this chapter. That even though there is much vanity, there can still be enjoyment if seen through the eyes of faith. Let's pray. God, we all have different feelings about work. Some of us are frustrated uh, because we don't have a job yet. Some of us are jealous, looking at others and just grumbling about how we deserve to be where they're at. Some of us really enjoy our work. In fact, a little too much. We, we boast in our accolades and we take pride in our achievements. Lord, help us to have a proper handle upon work, upon wisdom that it's something but not everything, that we were designed to labor and toil, but in a way that would please you and not ourselves and not others. Father, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom and then apply it to every facet of life, including how we approach our careers, how we steward all that has been given to us. And I pray that there will be much joy not necessarily from the work itself or the difficulties of life but because we know who it is who it is who is steering the whole ship who is guiding us the hand of our good and loving father we pray these things in Jesus name amen